Today on Rebuilders, we are looking at the dominant leadership paradigm that has marked the West for Mm. the last half century, perhaps, Mm. and how we're seeing that start to fall down. Yeah. We're going to be looking at really what is the big superstructure that influences our culture. Uh, Where are we at? Um, How have we been shaped at a global level, but also a personal level? And how this plays into things like discipleship, leading people. And uh, we talk about Emmanuel Macron in it, Um, uh, but also a big picture view if you really want to understand what is happening in the world. Yeah. Hopefully it's a helpful episode for you. If you want to get a list of any of the resources that are mentioned, books and articles, etc., that are mentioned in the episode, you can subscribe to our mailing list by heading to rebuilders.co. Let's get into it. Hi, welcome to Rebuilders. My name's Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. How are you both going today? I'm very well, thank you. I'm in a post-Easter Recovery period. Oh, uh, yeah. What, what exactly are you recovering from, Mark? I think it's just too many. East, I didn't have stacks of hot cross buns. I had a few. Yeah. And, uh, but chocolate, you know, mm. just, I just think, yeah. again, too, this could be something we can put to our international listeners. But I, my sense is that Australians eat a lot of chocolate at, at um, Easter and a yeah. lot of hot cross buns. Mm, carbs yeah. and sugar. Yeah. <laughs> mm, <laughs> the champions. And it has zero combo. impact on your bodies and sleep and general health. So yeah. Zero. <laughs> yeah. Did you say? I did some research over the weekend. <laughs> yeah. What what did you find? Yeah, zero impact. Hot cross buns and chocolate. Yeah. He's he's definitely being facetious. <laughs> oh th- thanks for ruining <laughs> I just was about to just go and gorge yourself again. Oh, I was going to do a victory lap. Uh, I, I watched the episode of Seinfeld last night that um, where with the low fat yogurt. Oh yes, and yes. they're all convinced that it's good for them. Yeah, mm. oh. yeah, yeah. No, um, for a- anyone that does look to rebuilders for for health advice. Yeah, this is the um, point. We're not first giving of all, medical we are health not. advice. <laughs> not qualified to do such things. My my sleep just goes out the window when I'm just. Carbon up and sugaring up. Yeah. So mm. anyway, today new day. It's a new day. Gonna get the salads, and veggies. Get <laughs> do, my sleep do, you eat, do that stuff before bed. <laughs> what? Sugar just gnaws on yeah, some yeah, celery. Yeah. Put spaghetti carbonara before you sleep. <laughs> <laughs> it's like um, Steve Carell in the office. He does his charity run. Oh, yeah, carb lights. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't get it because I, I don't. get your Seinfeld reference. So, yeah. yeah, that's all right. Anyway. We're starting today's episode with sitcoms. Sitcoms mm. galore. Mm. Uh, but today we are taking uh, a different route um, to last week's episode. I just want to say before we get into it, thank you to everyone who has sent us emails um, mm. and given us mm. feedback and mm. shared stories of what's happening um, in your different contexts across the world. It's so encouraging. Yeah. Um, yeah and we're just really thankful mm. to hear to hear what's happening. Something is afoot. Yes, very mm. much so. Yeah. So, yes, it is a privilege to be a part of all of that. Um, so let's keep sharing those stories. But today we are going to be looking at uh, one of Mark's favourite topics at the moment, <laughs> neoliberalism. Yes. But uh, as always on this uh, podcast, our aim is to help you uh, as leaders 
Christian leaders um, lead and disciple well in this mm. age. And that part of that is understanding the culture and knowing how to, to navigate that mm. or having a go at how to navigate that. And mm. we've used this term many, many times, um, grey zone. We are very much still in this grey zone, this sort mm. of um, time between eras. Mm. Um, and we've talked a lot about grey zone dynamics and mm. um, what's typical of these kind of transition-y mm. moments. Uh, yeah, so we're going to explore that um, neoliberalism as part of that. Yeah. So to help people understand, I think the, the real, you know, you can talk about this stuff and it gets very academic, but I think the real heart behind this is trying to understand the cultural moment we find ourselves in. Mm. And um, it's not easily done because history is being written. And I actually also do think that there is a shadowiness to our current culture. Mm. Uh, there is the maxim, which we've repeated numerous times on this podcast, that uh, if you want to ask a fish for the definition of water, don't do it because they just assume it. Um, so I think that's true of all cultures, that often people in their own cultures don't see them. But I think there's particularly something about our culture where we're in a very defined culture, mm. uh, but we don't actually understand those definitions. We don't see, we struggle to understand, you know, where power is really lies and, and how cultures are formed. Mm. So part of, you know, my reading is always trying to understand that and um, think about that and research that. And because um, I think it's absolutely key because if we're going to do ministry in this time and we're going to disciple people and share the gospel, understanding that is 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 really key. So just to give... Yes. A brief sort of like a uh, little background. So the word neoliberalism is thrown around a lot, often around in terms of economics. But I like Gary Gersel's uh, definition, which is that he wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Era. I think it came out last year to much acclaim. And uh, he basically d uses it to describe the order of – so the, the era of political order that we've lived through really probably since the 1970s. Mm -hmm. He talks about the fact that – when you had the Great Depression in the 1930s, uh, you then had this particular new political order begin in the world. What's mm. a political order? Political order is when there is a dominant ideology in the world which influences not only governments but also influences institutions, uh, popular culture, how people think about the world. And he makes this point that when a new political order comes in, it's so powerful that those opposed to it have to operate on its terms. So really what happened was after the chaos of the Great Depression, you then had governments had to step in and governments managed a lot more. And that was really the rise of what you would almost call the welfare state. Uh, you know, you saw across the world that idea that so many people had suffered through the Great Depression, also through the horror of World War One and World War II, mm -hmm. uh, that this sort of new economy, new way of seeing the world emerged. And I talk a little bit about this in um, uh, An Anxious Presence. And this is really what birthed the American century. And uh, that then began to run aground in the 1970s. So effectively, that period was uh, there was very low unemployment. Uh, there was lots of energy in the world, oil and gas, um, that uh, particularly in the Anglo world, um, governments could provide a lot for people. Mm. Um, and uh, that began to run aground in the 1970s when inflation came. America was involved in a war in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. It borrowed a lot of money. Yeah. To, to, to fund that war. And uh, you had the oil shock um, where the OPEC nations decided to punish the US for its support of Israel. And uh, all of a sudden the world went into what was called stagflation where you had very low growth, 
high inflation. Does this sound familiar to anyone? And, um, uh, you know, there was this response to that. And what they did is they, they went back to some earlier ideas. I can talk about that in a little bit. But a new era was born in the world. We moved from the political order, uh, which really was in the mid-century, to a new kind of order. And you had mm-hmm. the rise of people like uh, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, um, and it was this this world which most of us have taken for granted where the economy grew, uh, uh, there was a cutback on a lot of regulations and, you know, Ronald Reagan had the famous sort of statement that, uh, you know, like we need less of government, I'm just sort of paraphrasing, mm-hmm. and uh, the world was one which citizens increasingly became consumers, individualism grew, and uh, the economy in some ways seemed turbocharged. And uh, that I think has gone from the 1970s uh, till probably like maybe the global financial crisis in 2008. Yep. And we're in the midst of that era ending. And some of the things that upended the last era in the 1970s, such as inflation is back. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some energy crises uh, yep. again in the world, partially caused by the Ukraine war, but also our transition to a green economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're struggling to get growth in the in the sustained kinds of growth that we, we look for in our economy. Um, and also the sort of political culture that really defined the last sort of 30, 40 years where there were agreed upon rules that uh, people would uh, do. You had a lot of parties that were close to the center, left and right, became very similar. Um, a lot of that stuff is, is passing. So uh, to understand the transition of gray zone that we're going into, we need to understand what we're coming out of because really this is defined, I think, how we view leadership. The church was deeply shaped by this era and also defines how we view uh, uh, what is to be human mm. and view our world. Well, with all of that in mind, you um, today wanted to focus on, I guess, a model of of leadership, like a, a dominant leadership paradigm mm. that has emerged as part of mm. um, this particular era. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, it's it's you know, I'm reading a lot, and and you want to break it all down into sort of. Sim- I guess I always take a lot of research and then try and break it down into easily understood concepts. Mm. And so uh, to understand this, I, I want to sort of take apart this era into three components. Okay. One which affects the whole and then two which affect the individual. Yep. And then ask the question, how does that, how has that affected how we view leadership, which will flow into also how we view discipleship? So the up front, the headline is that really the last 30 or 40 years uh, our model of leadership has been primary, um, primarily a model of management rather than leadership. Yeah, okay. So managing the world. Yes. And uh, so to go back, so 1970s, um, this crisis comes and it's interesting, crises are transitional periods mm-hmm. and crises tend to be when the contradictions of the previous order in the world start to become more apparent. Yeah. And that happened as I just told the story of what happened in the world mm. um, in the 1970s. And uh, it's interesting, we often think of the 60s as sort of a, a sort of time of change and there was a lot culturally in the 60s, yes. but I think in terms of the actual hard structure of the world, it was really the 1970s. Mm. And I think we're going through that at the moment. And I think there's a similar comparison where you could say some of the culture war stuff is like what happened in the 60s, but then what's really changing the world is the big structural stuff in the world, geopolitics, yes. energy, yes. et cetera, happening at the moment, the economy. Um, so- Okay, so to take about these three elements is that behind every concept of an order, a political order like neoliberalism, like what preceded it, is an ideology. There's particular ideas about how the world works. 
And very much what happened was, um, and there's another there's another really interesting book um, called The Globalist by Quinn Slobodan, um, Slobodan, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, and he talks about that what happened in the 1970s was a bunch of ideas that had been floating around the world since mid-century actually came to the fore. And a lot of these ideas were in Switzerland and Austria by a group of thinkers, um, people like Hayek and von Mies and these people who had a particular vision for the world. What they'd, what they'd seen was a world which in World War I during the Great Depression had gone into chaos. Mm-hmm. And they saw particularly one thing that they're actually quite afraid of was that people could swing and make these decisions in democracies. Uh, so one classic example people forget is that it was democracy in Germany which brought Adolf Hitler to power. Mm. So they were very concerned of the power of the masses and the masses acting in these irrational ways. So interestingly, it was actually a sort of fear of populism mm. quite early. So their sort of model of the world was not neoliberalism, not so much as the getting rid of regulation and government getting out of the way of business as often there's sort of like a caricature of what it is. But really their idea was to create a series of institutions which encased the global economy and actually turned the world into an entity of trade. So you've got your local politics that could happen in a particular country, but then enveloping the world was this protective structure of a world of trade and consuming and and it was a revisioning of the world which really we would end up in what we understand today as globalization. Mm -hmm. And so part of that was to enable capital money to move around the world without being taxed in particular areas Mm -hmm. and without like an economy completely going to the dogs because the – citizens of that country are emotional about a particular issue and they 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 you know bring a dictator in so they felt the world was really fragile so what the world needed was less the sort of kind of leadership where someone could be a a strong leader in a country and incite the emotions of the people yes. and that would be replaced with a kind of leadership which is more about above that it hovered above and it wasn't yeah. as obvious and it sort of hovered a bit behind that stuff, but it controlled the stuff that really made the world run. Yeah, okay. Trade, supply chains, uh, laws between countries on how they trade. Yeah. And so part of what we see happening in mid-century is these ideas began to get established in the world and American dominance in the world began not just with American military power, but also with the establishments of things like the IMF, GATT, treatments which is on tariffs and trade and again too i just want to say to people you may be hearing this going this sounds incredibly boring and to be honest <laughs> like, i'm shocked that i'm reading this stuff but what i realize is this is really what has shaped our world and our imaginations mm. and so much of our current cultural little battles that people get excited about really this is the big superstructure behind it so imagine this is a superstructure and that this world will be run in some way by sort of faceless bureaucrats who ensured that behind the scenes there was a protective skeleton that kept and held the world together primarily and allowing the sort of uh, the market to do its magic thing yeah. but they felt that the market couldn't just be run wild it had to be controlled and create this environment so it's a vision of the world um, in which uh, the world runs smoothly and the citizens of the world are able to move around migrate trade uh, consume uh, enjoy the world for what it was and what particular individual countries were doing couldn't upset the apple cart, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned before that, yeah, this this type of leadership was more management. Yes. How does that come into play? Okay. So 
You don't want to lead. Okay, you contrast then the concept of what we understand as a leader. Yeah. And someone might say, oh, you know, Obama's an inspiring, you know, like a, think about Obama came in and, you know, he gave the inspiring speech. Mm. He was lauded because he gave a vision of hope. He was able to engage and create a broad coalition and, and give speeches. And I know that's a potential parochial thing for certain people hearing that, fine. But I'm making a bigger point here that, that, that's the sort of kind of leader, someone you'd see in the West Wing or yes, something, you know, yes. the inspiring leader. Yeah. Um, that's a model which these guys saw as about democracy mm-hmm. and the local and the people. Okay. Yeah. So the inspiring leader inspires the people, not just their minds, but their hearts. This was a different kind of leadership, which was above that, which is about the people who really made things happen. And it was about management. So yeah. managing this very complex world that they felt the average individual didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And managing that in a particular way. But what's really interesting as well, using technology. Mm-hmm. So again, too, if you want to go like old school listeners to to rebuilds, remember our early networked world episodes. Mm-hmm. And this was this cybernetic, which is a, is a word that again grew up in the mid-century of the world is a, is a network of nodes of people connected. And it's it's connected through the potentials of, of technology, which is expanding through telephone-wise and cables and the internet very much is born of this ideology. Mm. So, yes, you got your local leader giving a speech, perhaps inciting the passions of the people, but this is a different model of leadership is that what the world needs is not that kind of leadership because that's a bit dangerous. Yes. What we need is more people just sort of turning the dials a little bit here and there, yeah. and that's really where power lies. Now, in some ways, if we're going to start to bring a theological frame over this, I think part of the model of this is the world is a temple. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think there's a, there's a real theology of, of temple theology that we find in the scriptures. Uh, there's a vision, I think, um, if you read people like Gregory Beale, who I'm influenced by, of the concept that God creates the world to be a temple um, and uh, that humans are created to be his priests. And then in a sense, they're sort of mediators in this sort of like the eventual plan of God is to fill the world with his presence and the whole of creation to become a temple. So we begin yes. with Eden as a kind of temple, and then we end with, you know, Revelation 21, 22, where, you know, the new Jerusalem comes, and the new Jerusalem is in the shape of the holiest of holies. So it's like mm-hmm. the inner sanctum, mm-hmm. and Jerusalem becomes the holiest of holies, but the entire world is um, like a temple. And so I think that this sort of model, if you think about it, of this sort of management is almost a priestly role versus a king role. It's more the sort yeah, of mediators, okay. but it's not mediators between humans and gods. It's sort of mediators between capital and people and nations. And yeah. in a sense, you want to, the priest is to keep the system going. The prophet or the king, um, that's perhaps what we would more associate with what we see as political leaders. Yes. But I actually think, and no one, I'm not saying anyone here was thinking like this. This is my missiological reading over it. It's a vision of the world that we can make the world a safe place, free from the horrors that we saw in the Great Depression or Nazism or Stalinism. And if we just can sort of create this world where everything's just balanced and using technology and using expertise and using a class of bureaucrats, we can ensure that this sort of global temple buzzes along and 
at its core, there's a utopianism. John Gray yes. in his book, I think he wrote it in 1989, The Delusions of Global Capital, notes that there's a sense that the market almost portrays itself as secular. It portrays itself as detached and very data-driven and it's about goods and services and it's different to religion. But he sort of argues that there is a religious vision in this vision of globalist, globalized capital, mm. um, that it's based on a utopianism, that if we can to put the right things in place, the right institutions, agreements, international laws, the world will buzz and the world will slowly move to being this utopian place. So that's the superstructure of the world. Yeah. Now, think about just even how that how people said, I think if you're under 35 or 40, you probably don't realize that the vision of you, you might have of, I just want to take a holiday in that country and I'm just going to go and I'm going to use my Uber app there and I'm going to duck into this, this big global brand chain here. That's all result of this, this, this concept that you should be able to travel the world because the world is, is actually an interesting, wonderful cosmopolitan place that you have the access to travel around like a kind of tourist slash consumer. That's also born of this vision of the world. Yeah. Most people throughout history have not thought of the world like that. Yeah. So it sounds to me like, uh, Comfort and safety are kind of paramount. A hundred percent. And smoothness. Yeah. Smoothness. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So so the priest facilitates smooth mediation and worship and, and sacrifice and, and exchange is partially the priestly role. Yeah. Which is like what, what this is playing in this world. So what then is problematic that we have yes. taken on as leaders within um, mm. Christian contexts? Yeah, so th- this this is you know it dribbles down into the entire culture and trickles down, and and I think there's a sense also where very much this sort of managerial, bureaucratic kind. Look, the, you know, I don't want to disparage bureaucrats or managers here. There's an important thing where we need people to ensure that things run well, and I love living in a place where things are run pretty well. Mm. And uh, But there's an element here where I think what we can do is see these kinds of models of leadership and, you know, you almost get a, a model of church leadership which is almost based on how many bums on seats in that room, how many services do we run, yeah. uh, how many programs do we do, how do we make the programs efficient, um, you know, how do we do this online service in this particular way? And you get this very data-driven, you know, and some of the church growth movement in perhaps some of its excesses I think falls under this mm-hmm. where you're also creating a space for consumers of religious goods and services to gather in these spaces and it has many of the senses of this world that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that means is there's a kind of leadership where one is less inclined to make difficult leadership decisions decisions if that upsets the sort of smooth running of things. And often in churches, you'll actually see this come, becomes a bit of a tension point between people who are trying to lead spiritually and then yes. the sort of bureaucratic class of perhaps that church or even perhaps the domin- denomination. Yeah. So then what, what's the answer to that? <laughs> is there an answer? <laughs> so I, I think that often how these things work out is, well, the, the first thing we need to, to go back one step is yeah. that this political order, we're entering into grey zone because this political order is failing. Yeah. Now, just give you one story from the news. So uh, yesterday, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, made a trip to China and uh, met with uh, the Chinese leader, uh, Xi, and uh Basically, it was originally thought people thought it was going to be about brokering a peace deal for Ukraine. 
um, and using China's influence over Russia to to broker a peace deal. And Macron, uh, if everyone remembers, also made a sort of dash to meet with Putin mm-hmm. just before the onset of the Ukraine war. Um, now, this story is really interesting in what it tells about the whole story. So number one, uh, Emmanuel Macron is um, uh, flew away to that trip as there was significant unrest in France. Mm. Uh, this is because they're wanting to um, um, bring down, I say, uh, raise the retirement age, mm-hmm. and there was huge protests across France. These are not the first set of protests. There were pr- protests, uh, uh, process, protests, protests <laughs> earlier uh, by the Yellow Vest movement, as it was called. Uh, but what this was about was the fact that the model that France had of a European state able to pay people things like pensions at an earlier age is very much from that earlier political era where you had a large baby boomer demographic, a significant tax base. Um, And interestingly, Macron comes from very much the French financial world. And uh, in some ways, what you have is the neoliberal president trying to lead France into a new era mm-hmm. where a lot of the population's imaginations are shaped by the previous era. Yep. And so you had over, you know, something like 3.5 million people hit the streets in France. And so they burnt down his cafe. Uh, they actually stormed the offices of the giant sort of uh, investment firm, uh, BlackRock, which owns seems like owns half the world at the moment. So you've got significant unrest in France um, because the era of neoliberalism is starting to struggle with significant contradictions that are being thrown up. Mm. Some of this is around demographic decline, the fact that nations which have pushed into this and China and even the African stats have just come out and even Africa is now going to population decline. The world that has been in the neoliberal era is heading towards significant population decline, which in some ways that might be good for the environment, but it's going to be really disruptive socially and economically and politically. And Macron's trying to lead them through that. They burnt his favourite cafe down in Paris basically as he's getting on the plane. Mm. He then flies to China and uh, surprises everyone on the plane out uh, on the French president's jet. He gives an interview to Politico and um, basically talks about the fact that uh, Europe needs to step away from America and be this third pole in a multipolar world. Mm. Now, the neoliberal vision really was facilitated by a unipolar view of the world where America was the dominant force in the world, ensuring that all of these institutions, that international trade, all of this could flow smoothly. The dollar was at the top of that um, as an international trading currency. Um, And then uh, Macron surprised everyone by talking about the fact that even America's sort of dollar dominance needs to be challenged, that America's commitment to Taiwan needs to be challenged. And what you saw was Macron jumping on a trend that has already been sort of growing in the last few weeks where of countries like Malaysia, South Africa, Brazil, Argentina, talking about the world needing to move away from American dominance, having one currency dominate everything like the dollar. Um, not getting involved in issues of human rights that is really central to the sort of neoliberal vision or mm. Anglo Anglosphere concepts of what human rights are in contrast to what others' hu- concept of human rights are. And so what you're seeing is that world breaking down. And so the first thing is the neoliberal world where everything is managed well and the world is held together in a globalised sense is moving more into a much more fractured world 
So yeah. that vision of the world, which is central to this vision where you can just be a consumer and you don't have to think about the big things. Mm -hmm. Geopolitics is now crashing into both our national politics and our individual lives. So the issue is not what do you do if that's your church? The issue is more crises are going to come against that model. Yes. And how do we lead into that? And my, my, my comment here is if you continue to lead into that with a sort of kind of management mentality, mm. you're going to find yourself increasingly in trouble. So what's the mentality that we're going to need to adopt to explore or to, to navigate this and lead well? So two, okay, so that, that's, there's three components on our layer here. Yes. Um, so the first one is that vision of the world yep. and this will lead us to that answer. The second point, that's, that's a big macro one. The second yeah. two points are more personal. Yes. So that was, if you can imagine a utopianism at a global level yep. um, and that has reshaped the individual. Mm. In a sense, we're more shaped or is at least equally shaped by that neoliberal global globalization view of the world than we are by our local cultures that we exist in. Yeah. So, you know, I know, I think it was the Barna uh, Connected Generation Report talked about the fact that uh, millennials are more shaped, are more like millennials in other countries than they are like their own compatriots in their own country. Yeah, wow. So, so the neoliberal world is shaping the imagination. So how does that shape the individual's imagination in two particular ways? Mm -hmm. The first one is a vision of the world where – the individual previously and the family and human relationships were seen as separate to the economic sphere. Mm. Uh, there was the economic sphere of trade and capital and all of that, and that, that was out there. And then there was almost this place you could hide from that, which was individual relationships, your own personal life, the family, et cetera, et cetera. But really what neoliberalism did was begin to see the individual as a component of that economic world. The yeah. economic reading of the world came into the individual. And so what that meant was the individual's life could be optimised, mm. like a company could be optimised or a production line. Uh, and you even think about, say, like dating apps where people will mark themselves on a series of different likes and the complexities of a human is reduced down to almost into these data points that mm. we would previously look at a commodity around. That then flows naturally into algorithms and the management of people through algorithms and our connection to algorithms in this time and place. But ultimately, I think what it means is the vision of neoliberalism was to make a more efficient, profitable, technologically run, managed life where profitability was optimized. Yeah. Now, that, that worldview has then been placed over the individual. Just look at how we talk about self-help now. We talk about life hacks. There are people like Tim Ferriss, like here's the tools of the titans of, you know, people in Silicon Valley get up and have this drink in the morning. You should do the same. You should do a high impact training for 15 minutes. Here's the way to maximize your money, maximize your love life, maximize through mindfulness, even your inner mental health. Mm. And so what this has done is it's given like just as, uh, you know, I was talking to someone who worked for a, 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 a organization that was uh, helping people with disabilities mm -hmm. and they talked about how 15 20 years ago it was very communal it was very relational you got to spend time with the families of people coming in who were um you know experiencing this disability and uh but what had happened was as neoliberalism had come in it was more about 
seeing this 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 entity, this community entity, as a business, mm. and you know, profitability, long term staff were sacked, and people were brought in who were marketers, and people felt like they had less time with the, the people they were called to work with. A lot of people working, they were questioning themselves. This is not why I got into this. Mm. They said it's not as enjoyable anymore. So that, that's what happens to, to institutions in neoliberalism, but that also happens to us as individuals. Yeah. I think a lot of talk about burnout culture is actually about this mentality rather than people living longer, sorry, sleeping less or working less. There was an article, I think it was in the Times in, in the UK over the weekend that actually people are sleeping more and working less than they were like 15, 20 years ago, mm. but we're more burnt out. Mm. You talk to people who are working three days, they feel burnt out because this mentality of continual life optimization uh, is I think one of the ways that our lives have been profoundly shaped by this neoliberal vision, which is not named but hovers in the background. Mm. So the danger is that that when you're bringing a managerial approach to to leadership, uh, you can have people who are in your church and what they're looking for is a kind of you as a kind of life coach yeah. to help them maximize and optimize their life. Yeah. Now, the minute that that doesn't work for them, they're going to find another branch or another brand mm-hmm. to find that from. Or they'll rally against, right? Well, that comes into the next one. Okay, great. <laughs> but, but good, good, yeah. uh, good uh, thinking ahead. Um, and, and I think you were talking to me, Daniel, and you've got more expertise on this because I haven't heard, but John Tyson gave a talk recently about uh, uh, resonance People looking for resonance versus obedience. Do you feel confident to relay John's thought there? Because oh, I think yeah. it intersects here. Yeah, it's from a, a message a sermon he gave sometime last year, but he just had a little line in it around, um, he, he just, I think he just said, uh, resonance isn't obedience. Mm. So just to resonate with something isn't actually the goal. It's in the way of following Jesus. Is that obedience is the goal. Yes. Um, so it's not enough to be like, oh, yeah, that's that, – I, I resonate with that and I get that and that feels good. It's actually, there's more to it than what Jesus invites us in. And if you think about it, you bring that to this concept that what people then can be looking for is things that resonate with their program of optimization. Yes. And if your church resonates with what they see as their goals and programs of optimization, to have a place where I can, you know, send the teenagers and this has helped me, you know, mm-hmm. like resonate, you know, like some life hacks to give me a bit of community, even though neoliberalism continually undermines community. Um, that you know, uh, uh, that is a place will resonate. But the gospel collides with our expectations. Mm. The gospel undermines yeah. and subverts uh, often our life plans. So when you get to this point where you're leading people into spiritual growth, and we talked about um, leadership on the line and mm. Hefetz and Minsky's book, I think it is, um, where actually the leadership is often leading people into areas where they're going to feel like they're taking losses for the sake of growth, yeah. all of a sudden – you you start to run aground here, um, and also the other thing that I just just of note is what we've seen over the last few years. If you think about the global financial crisis happens, and they brought in the experts Timothy Geithner and Ben Bernanke, and through quantitative easing and stimulus, they got us out in a sense of the global financial crisis. It could have been much worse, but it's the sort of triumph of the managers. Mm. Uh, you look then at COVID, very much a lot of the conversation around COVID was leaders trying to manage their way through 
uh, this global health crisis. And, you know, we experienced that. And, you know, mm. part of almost people in Australia wanting, like, we want maximum freedom, minimum infections. Um, so we'll go with the government's plans to sort of manage their way through this. Mm. Um, and seeing governments do almost more unprecedented things like lockdowns, um, which they've never, you know, not seen since the Spanish flu, in a sense, to manage everything through it. Then coming out of that, managing the economy again, water with the experts do last time, we did stimulus. So we'll do that again. But now we've got a financial crisis through inflation. How are we going to manage our way through that? The Federal Reserve are going to do that. Now we're in a war in Ukraine. And how are we going to manage that? So we, we win the war, defeat Putin, but not get to nuclear and not spill into the borders, into Poland, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're trying to manage a crisis with China, you know, and, mm -hmm. and to competing powers. Yeah. So what you're seeing is people throwing management at crises, but the line I want to put in here is leadership is increasingly helping people innovate new solutions in the midst of crisis. Mm. Because yesterday's management techniques, which was to keep everything just smooth, when you're facing a multiplicity of crises, management uh, is just doing what worked yesterday well. Yes, yeah. And using old playbooks well, where leadership has an innovative reality to it and and it's not as, you know, uh, it's not as safe <laughs> to put yes. it that way. yeah. So the second element there, which I think also aligns with what you're saying, so the first thing is, go through them again, neoliberalism wants to create the world as this kind of smooth place through this mm -hmm. career, encasing it and, and managing the world. Secondly, we manage our lives through optimization. But the third really contradictory element to um, uh, neoliberalism is part of the vision of neoliberalism also came in mid-century. It didn't really come into play. Often ideas take decades to, to play out. But part of the American form of, of what happened as well uh, for some of the early proponents of people who came from Central Europe to America, again, Hayek and, and you know, Mies and all these different people, was there was this great fear in mid-century America as they came to the end of the political order that had existed since really the Great Depression was that everything was looking the same, yeah. that they had seen that bureaucracy at that time there was these books like The Organisational Man, The Man in the Grey Flannel Suit, the Lo David uh, Reese's The Lonely Crowd, which was the 50s as this vision of everything being the same and a lack of innovation, a lack of creativity. Now, they weren't worried about that so much in that was like, oh, that's stifling, I don't know, the emergence of Jimi Hendrix or something. What they were more seeing was that was a danger to the economy because the entrepreneurial spirit was dead. So we needed to somehow, if we're going to move the economy forward and get this world of people buzzing around and creating new things and this buzzing global economy, we need to almost reinvigorate in the individual a utopia drive towards becoming an entrepreneurial figure who'll take new ground. And so what they did was they brought into it this concept of liberation. Mm. So very much that 1960s liberation from sexual norms of the past, from institutions which required our commitment, from social mores, that that was then in neoliberalism. And I think this is why the subject is so important because so much of our conversation people want to talk about is polarization. But what a lot of people don't realize is that neoliberalism contains both a left and a right wing, but both have very much a disruptive element to it, is that you had this social uh, liberalism with a economic radical conservatism. 
mm. if that makes sense. So the individual was then encouraged to break away from that which restrains, break away from binding relationships, to self-express, to self-create, to discover in themselves uh, all of these things. And that, in a sense, that reshaping then would ensure that the global economy was moving to new heights. Now, where that comes in as well is that's in people. So again, the church, which is trying to move people towards discipleship and community, people desperately want to optimize community, yeah. but they, they've got this contradictory like drive towards liberation from community. Yes. <laughs> so I want community as a hack when I want it, but I'm driven by this deep cultural reality to continually self-create and change and not be bound and to keep moving and keep discovering and actually self-create versus be discipled. Yeah. And that, I mean, you see that play out in a in a number of different ways. And I think, yeah, coming back to the point that I made before, you know, people rallying against the um, – yeah, the strictures of, of um, organisations. Mm. Um, we're seeing that everywhere. We've talked about it totally um, a number of times on this podcast. Can, so can I just give one, exa yeah, one yeah, example please. of that? Is you know, there's an article in, in our paper, and I'll try and find it here, of just more and more teachers um, uh, who are leaving the profession, wanting to leave the profession because they're called to do two things. Mm. On one level, they're called to optimise. They yes. live in a, in a school environment which is less about community, more about profitability and efficiency and productivity. Yep. Um, so they feel that pressure. Secondly, um, they people want to optimise. So they send kids to the teacher to be a social worker, to be a sex ed, you know, like to – to, to help them with all kinds of various health challenges, autism, yep. you know, all this sort of stuff that's going on. And so that puts the pressure on the teacher. Um, but then also the teacher's dealing with the reality of liberation where uh, they've also got kids running around the classroom swinging their, you know, hoodies above their heads and, mm -hmm. and carrying on because we've been taught to liberate ourselves from the bounds of authority and, and this. So there's yeah. increased sort of like social, the, 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 the mores of like, obeying authority or uh, being conscious of what other people might be thinking. So you've got this radical individualism alongside an optimization. Yes. And those two things actually go against each other. Very much like, so. <laughs> in a contradiction as, a, as a, a someone schooled in teaching. Yes. Schooled in teaching? Is that <laughs> yeah, the right yeah, term? You can go with You've that. experienced this personally. Mm. So my sense is how do we lead into this? We're running into a crisis with this stuff. Mm. It's falling over. Now, I can't give you the five points of what we should do, but what I can give in the spirit of rebuilders is this is going to be ground up emergent mm. answers are going to come from people. I think just understanding the context is helpful first of all. But I think leaders present a particular vision and then they see those who are willing to go towards that. that. And I think that, that we need to bring that back. <laughs> Yeah. That we're not going to manage our way through this crisis because yesterday's problems are not tomorrow's solutions. And, you know, I think there's an element where uh, there's people who need to realize that they're going to be writing a unique set of solutions and uh, dependency on God becomes really key. Yeah. Understanding that conflict is going to be normative going forward. Yeah. Understanding that uh, people's like our understandings of self-optimization need to be subverted and challenged. Yes. Our understandings of liberation as an endless telos 
in one direction where we just continually self-explore people. There's two things happening in that. There's people who are pushing deeper into that and other people realising the fall of that. Mm. You know, just this weekend, I think of stories I've heard of people who have walked away from church because they just want to ride that self-exploration thing to the to the horizon and other people who have gone further than them and collapsed in on themselves and are turning up to church for the first time. Mm. Both of those things are going to happen in this time. So I believe that we're, we're going into this stage where there's going to be like stacks of disruption but also tons of creativity and part of the question is how do we lead our people in this versus just managing the same in the same ways which are not, you know, as I said before on this, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. Mm. Well, it's an interesting time ahead. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I wonder how – important it is to look to Jesus as, um, oh, not I wonder how important it is. It is important to look to Jesus as the example of um, of a leader who was creative and innovative. Mm. You know, he went against um, or challenged and uprooted all of the mm. um, the expectations of the age, the, the management paradigm of that totally. particular context. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, one, one thing as well I would I would add as well is, you know, we've just done a series at Red on mm. Prophet Paris King. Mm. And in some ways if the global te- – I, th- I think almost every ideology is a poor version of biblical the- temple theology. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I talked about before almost that managerial thing of almost like a priestly role at, at the bureaucratic high levels. Um, I think rediscovering the prophetic office <laughs> – Yes. Um, rediscovering uh, when to speak into these things in, in a way which calls people back to the word. Yes. Um, versus the sort of management manuals of our day. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, secondly, that that's really key. Secondly, uh, also the idea of kings and queens, the dominion, is probably the one I realised as we were preaching that series that people today least identify equi- with. Uh, yeah, yeah. Equate with. Um, because we actually think the bureaucrats are going to make this all like like we want we don't actually want a leader or a king or a queen to tell us what to do. We just want bureaucratic sort of managers to make everything smooth and make our Uber Eats arrive. Yeah, and yeah. Get the exact so we can meal still we have the choices. We yes. just yeah don't want to be told what to do because we're actually the king or queen in our mind. <laughs> and uh, so I think part of also there's this sense of at the essence of a king or queen is dominion in a biblical sense, not dominion in, in a worldly sense, mm. dominion in a biblical sense. And I think there's a rich vein of what it understands to take responsibility for your life versus optimization. Mm. So people needing to take responsibility for their spiritual growth, which is a willingness to follow Jesus where that takes people, versus small hacks which I can control, which are about life optimization with a Christian veneer over it. Mm. So that's just a small sort of like uh, foreshadowing where I think some of this conversation could go. Yeah, well, super challenging and confronting actually. Uh, anything else that either of you want to add for today's episode? Man- final comment, management struggles with complexity. Yeah, Okay. So part of this too is I think in, in times of, of, of complexity, leadership emerges and often leadership emerges in times of complexity through rediscovering simplicity. Mm. So I think some of the things that, you know, we talked about in our last episode yep. of a humbly going after God and his, and his um, presence, of a remnant doing that, of creating spaces for those who really want to push into that, I think that's also some of the sort of simple answers that will help us cut through uh, uh, the complexity of this time. Yeah. That's really helpful. Thank you so very much, Mark. Thank you, Daniel. We'll see you guys next week. 